0: And this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. listeners. This is Datacast, why I have long-form and in-depth conversation with other
1: practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Miraf yurav livker the co-founder and CEO of Data Society with over 10 years of experience in instructional design, training, and teaching. She started her career teaching elementary special education in New York City Public School through the Teach for America program. She went on to join the International Baccalaureate Organization, where she developed deep expertise in online training, assessment, and recruitment. She also taught as a Kaplan down instructor, where she ranked as one of the top 10% instructor based on student surveys. Mira found her passion for education and knew that she wanted to make an impact on an even larger scale. She recognized the importance of data literacy and began her data journey by learning how to program and design best practices for students during her free time. As a result of that, six months later, she left her full-time job to focus on building data society along with her co-founders. And over the past seven years, she and her team have developed, customized industry-tellers data science training solution to educate, equip, and empower an organization's workforce, to achieve its goal and expand its impact. So with that introduction, Merab, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Fabulous. So by way of introduction, based on my research, I believe that you went to McGill University for your undergrad studying psychology and sociology. Can you share briefly about your upbringing alongside your college experience?
2: Absolutely. I am a first-generation American, so my parents actually immigrated to the country. And for me, uh, education was always very important in my upbringing. We saw that, you know, my parents heavily emphasized the importance of having curiosity and learning. And I took that from my childhood into adulthood. So for me, it's always been a pleasure and a joy to learn. And I think that's how we can continue to improve ourselves, the people around us, as well as our relationships. When I went to McGill University, I was especially interested in interactions between individuals. So I did my undergraduate in uh, arts and science with psychology and sociology. And, you know, again, that's a skill set that I've built and I've taken with me in my career because we have to interact with individuals and groups of people, regardless of the industry that we're in. So that was a very solid foundation for me.
0: I see. Just curious,
1: was there any classes that you took during undergrad that stuck with you? throughout this year?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. The one that sticks with me the most was actually the study of the brain itself. So McGill University is highly regarded for brain research. And we were actually taken to a research lab where we could see brains and actually get to, to look at them, which was interesting and also a little bit weird. (laughs) And we had to memorize all the different parts of the brain as well as the interactions that they had. And I remember that it was the hardest class that I took because it's a lot of anatomy and understanding where everything was. But to me, it was the most satisfying because you're really understanding the innate nature of humans and there's still so much to learn. It's a very open field in terms of the connections that we have in the brain, how we can repair them and build them. So, um, you know, that was a really interesting experience for me.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing that answer. It seems like that also allowed you to engage in that scientific thinking, of analyzing, you know, human brain and, and engage in that inquiry as well. So, after college, you went on to spend two years teaching elementary special education in. New York City Public School via the Teach for America program. So drawing from that experience, what do you think are some of the most important attributes of an exceptional teacher?
2: I think to be an exceptional teacher, you have to have an extraordinary amount of patience because children are learning, right? They're not fully formed adults yet. And it's important to remember that their perspective is very different from an adult's perspective. So having a lot of patience is key. And I'd say another really important factor that is difficult for a lot of teachers is to be able to take care of yourself first. Teaching is a grueling job. You are up early, you're there late, you don't take breaks. It's not like you can hop out of the classroom to get a coffee like people who work in offices do. So it's very demanding. And you have to be able to take a step back from the classroom and find ways to re-energize yourself and to take care of yourself. Whether that's taking a bath, whether that's going for a run, whether that's going out for drinks, doing something to help remind you, you know, that you're a person outside of the classroom, make sure that you can be a better teacher when you're in the classroom. So to me, having, you know, those two key attributes, what really helps contribute to a, a good teacher.
1: I see. So you said patient and self okay, Was that some of those that you cultivate over time and maybe if you, share some interesting story from those two years teaching for TFA. How does that like impactful, you know, your first job out of college, some of the skills that you can develop from that?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, for me, I was fresh out of college. So here I am, you know, a 21 year old in New York city public schools. And I really wanted to do the best that I could for my students. What I found coming into the classroom is that teachers, have many hats and i would say especially at the younger age you're not just teaching but you are also kind of an emotional coach for them as well you're bringing that level of support and you have to learn how to juggle all of that so through the first few months i was still finding my feet and one of the ways that i started to grow into my own as an educator is understanding how to set objectives and share objectives with students so what i did to help my students get invested in their own education was walk them through and say, what are the goals that you have? You know, what would you like to read by the end of the year? Pick a book off of the shelf and then let's work backwards and let's put milestones in there and work towards your ability to be able to read. And when they have that objective, that milestone in mind that they help set themselves, it's creating a feeling of autonomy for them. And it's investing themselves in their own education, which I think is absolutely crucial, especially in a younger age. So by developing this sort of very early stage data tracking, you are helping these students orient on a goal and then helping them work through it. So, you know, giving people those types of guidelines was really helpful and successful. So we had star charts on every student's desk and they got stars and, you know, chocolate is a great motivator, no matter what age somebody is. So being able to pull those elements in there and helping them motivate themselves was a great experience.
1: I love that part about, you know, being a teacher, not just about the material, but also from the emotional part of you as well. And I think that's that's interesting insight that probably going to help you a lot later on in your career, especially as a father, which we'll talk about later on. But before that, stepping back into your professional journey. So, between 2012 and 2015, you joined the International Baccalaureate Organization and also teach as a Kaplan GRE instructor, where you were ranked as one of the top 10% instructor. Yeah, it seems like you move up from teaching elementary kids and now you go into high school. And even I think GRE is like, you know, grad student. Right. Right? So, can you comment briefly on this phase of your career?
2: So after I spent a few years in the classroom, I realized that I wanted to be able to affect change on a larger scale. So, you know, I love teaching very much. I knew I wanted to stay in education. And I found an opportunity with the International Baccalaureate Organization, which is an organization that crafts and helps deliver accelerated programs for children uh, and students between kindergarten all the way through high school. And You know, I actually did the IB program when I was in high school. I went to an international school in South America for a few years during my high school career or high school phase. And I knew how much they emphasize independent thinking, which is, again, you know, just memorizing facts will only get you so far, but it's important to be able to evaluate them yourself. And I was brought on board to help with worldwide assessments that students take every year, as well as recruiting instructors and setting up online training. So all of a sudden, I was bringing in my education background, and then using that in a bunch of different facets. So I love that I had the ability to learn, I was able to travel and meet a lot of instructors and teachers. And it helped me shape how I think about assessment and training today, and still kept my feet on the ground by teaching GREs. So I would teach the GREs part time. And it was a pleasure to work with students who, I mean, at that point, they were already motivated, because here they are signing up to take the GREs. So they knew what their objectives were. And for me, it was really fun to be able to work with adults and walk them through, you know, what are the key strategies that they need to know in order to do well on this exam. So for me, it was being able to try my hand and, and grow in, in other ways in education and then also still be able to be in the classroom and teach.
1: I see yeah so it seems like you focus both on uh, policy level you mentioned earlier like managing developing planning scheduling for how the education regime might look like be while also still doing some hands-on work by doing the teaching on the side right so like that exactly kind of up later, in terms of uh, organizational thinking. Now, in 2014, you have created uh, Data Society, a predictive analytics training consulting company at the time with Dimitri Arthur and John Nader. So can you share the backstory behind the founding of the organization?
2: Absolutely. So back in 2014, it feels like forever ago, I had been in my job for a few years and I was thinking about where's the next stage of my career. And at that point, I... Had new, I had known I wanted to do something different, but didn't really know where and didn't really know what. And at that time, my co founder, Dimitri, had come back to DC. He and I knew each other peripherally, and he has a lot of experience on Wall Street. So he was an analyst on Wall Street for seven, eight years. And John Nader, the GC general counsel, and also had a lot of experience in operations of organizations as well. So, you know, we all three of us independently have worked with data. And we all saw that data was becoming more important. And we also saw through our own journeys, it was actually very difficult for us to learn how to use data effectively. There weren't a lot of materials at the time. And even if there were, the typical videos that were online were not really customized to me. So it was difficult for me to make that connection between how to use this in theory versus how to use it in practice. You know, I had taken some statistics in college, but I wasn't a math major And I'd never programmed before. So all three of us found difficulty in finding the type of education that we needed and the type that we knew that a lot of other professionals needed as well. So we all separately identified this problem and ended up getting together and saying, well, if this doesn't exist, we all have skill sets that are complementary to each other. Let's start a company. Let's start to build our first program to help professionals learn these skills quickly and effectively. And let's see how that goes. And, you know, that was back in 2014. And the way that I like to think of it, the first few years, we were learning data science, we were learning how to run a business, we were making connections, speaking to students. And we initially started with individuals. And then we saw many of our students coming to us and asking us, hey, can you come in and can you train our teams? So now we saw a need on an organizational level to train groups of people so they could communicate well with one another. And that's how we've grown into the company that we are today. You know, We now deliver full-scale programs on an annual basis to help build a data-driven culture within an organization. And at the same time, we also built out the solution side of the house, because as we were teaching, we got, we got the same request, hey, can you help us build this? So that's how we've grown our business. But really with the mission to help people use data better, at the end of the day, that's what we're most passionate about, because you know, I truly believe that. If we can get to a big enough scale, we can really shift the way that industries work and how they think. And, you know, all of that is because we know how powerful education is. And we also understand how important data is. And when you put those two together, you can make really great things happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing the story, the inception of the organization. I think one point that uh, you kind of mentioned a bit during your answer is that you don't really have a programming background, you know, before studying data society right and i think based on my research from the background you actually dedicate nice and weekends to learn programming on your own and i think after about six months and you just have to quit your job your full-time job to focus on data society right can you talk more about that period of your life how do you actually you know learn programming you know on your own like what are some of the things that useful and and not useful if you can recall
2: Yeah, that's a great question. It does feel a bit crazy now to think that I started a data science company without a data science background per se, but, you know, I'd never really programmed before and I found resources online to start cobbling it together. What was really helpful was speaking to other people in the field who were already using these languages because they really helped me understand the use cases behind why it's important to know programming. And then we're also able to give me references for more resources to learn from. So I just remember, you know, when I started programming and R was my first language, it felt honestly like the coolest thing in the world, because it just never felt attainable to me as an education major to be able to do anything like programming. And to be able to create data visualizations, to clean data quickly, to get some of these insights, I just remember feeling so empowered that I had the ability to do that. And I remember one specific moment where I was, I was working on a shiny app, which is an interactive visualization. And I was developing an exercise for one of the courses that we had. And for some reason, my code wasn't running. And I spent... You know, hours looking through the code. Here I was Googling the error, all of the typical things that you would find. And finally, I found that one comma, you know, that threw everything off. And I erased the comma and I, I ran the program, created the visualization, and it was just so much fun. And, and, you know, I really fell in love with solving challenges. For me, that's what I, I love about the job that I have now. It's doing things I've never done before and being able to find solutions to challenges to help move our company forward.
1: I see. Thanks for sharing that story. It seems you got really attracted to that problem solving capability, right? And also like cultivate the tenacity to solve problem, even like obstacle raised along the way. So I think that's yeah. that's one of the biggest challenge of learning programming is that you're very really tenacious enough to solve the problem without giving up.
2: And honestly, Google is the programmer's best friend, <laughs> Google and Stack Overflow, because every single problem and every single error that comes up, somebody else has already had that error come up before. So um, somebody has solved the problem that you're having in general. So don't be afraid to Google things. I see expert programmers that go on to Stack Overflow all the time to find solutions to their challenges.
1: For sure. Let's Talk more about the offering of data society. You already briefly mentioned that, you know, in your previous answer, but I definitely want to zoom in and take a look at different solutions and training programs that you and your team provided. Sort of the key main component that data society provides, data science training programs being tailored to specific business needs, preferred timelines, and desired results of the clients. So could you mind explaining why data science training should be industry tailored for maximum success?
2: Yeah. And thank you for that question. That's a core building block of what we do as a company, because there are, like we said, a lot of training resources that are out there today. So it's not that there's a lack of resources, but the challenge that we saw is that especially professionals, they don't have the time to spend you know, hours searching through videos and they need to understand the real world challenges of data. And a lot of that has to do with data cleaning. So given those two factors, when we work with organizations, we talk to them about their use cases and their data sets, and we can incorporate that into our content so that the people who are in the course, the learners, can pick it up even faster. We provide coding templates that they can see step-by-step how we go through the process, and they can take that template and then reconfigure it a little bit with their own data so that they can get these skills up and running even faster. It's really important that people can connect with the use case because that's how they're motivated to learn it and that's how they learn it even faster. Um, so that's why it's critical to have that type of tailoring in there as well as an instructor in the room or virtually as we all are today to be able to answer those tough questions about the challenges that professionals are facing in their careers today, right? How do you clean a particular data set? How do you think through the analysis of this data? how would you present it well? Those questions can be answered only by, by experts and by instructors in the classroom. So, giving that extra level of support is the other key to success of our programs.
1: Mm-hmm. I see. To the second point about having the expert for that industry, I think my understanding is that society also like have in-house there's and engineer. Mm-hmm. So, I'm curious, you know, how do you choose the industry to engage with, both from the client side as well from the talent side of thing? You know, how do you like prioritize? Which one to go up to?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. It's honestly, a lot of it has been shaped by the market and where we found our niche. We are based in Washington, D.C., so about 50% of the work that we do is with federal agencies. And, you know, that's been really great because the federal workforce is really excited to be trained up in data. And in fact, many of them have a mandate to become more data literate. So it's very much in line with their objectives. On the commercial side, we found that finance, healthcare, and then defense and and contractors. Those are key areas where there's a lot of data and the expertise needs to grow very quickly. You know, especially in healthcare, if we're thinking about the past few years with the COVID-19 pandemic, The ability to be able to use data really is a life or death situation. How do you distribute vaccines? How do we track where there are going to be outbreaks? You know, being able to sequence, let's say, new variants that come out, all of that requires data and being able to understand how to use that effectively is critical. So we saw that there were just these needs in these areas, and that's how we've defined our verticals through that.
1: Yeah. And we'll definitely talk more about government and healthcare later on in your conversation. But uh, I think just one quick note, I'm curious about the training program itself. How do you evaluate, I guess, the success of the program? Obviously, I think with more iteration, you know, your program can improve for different cohorts, but in general, like what is like an internal framework that data society team used to judge and evaluate and, and improve the curriculum over time.
2: Yeah. We have a few different metrics for that. So the first one are assessments and surveys. We do pre and post program surveys that also evaluate the skill level that somebody has coming in and coming out, and also gives the opportunity for students and learners to provide us feedback for how we can continue to iterate on our programs. So based on the differential between the pre and post, we can extrapolate some measure of improvement over that program. During the program itself, we actually have exercises that students walk through, and we also have these knowledge checks that we provide to make sure that during the class, students are uh, understanding the concepts that are presented. So that's a real-time check where instructors can see, hey, this class maybe didn't answer this one question correctly, so let me go and review that to make sure that everybody understands the concept before moving on. So it's a lot of that real-time feedback that also ensures the high quality of our programs. Beyond that, uh, a lot of our programs have capstone projects where students can bring their own data sets and, and their own challenges to the program. And over the course, they're able to work on that using the skills that they're learning. And that's a really great measure of return on investment. And it also demonstrates so strongly just how important these data skills are because they're leaving the program with a solution to a challenge that they've been facing in their job. And that's another metric of success that we have. How far along did that person get to their capstone project? You know, What are some of the other barriers and challenges that they're facing? So those are some of the key metrics that we're looking at. And we also have informal uh, and anecdotal surveys. So for example, one of the advantages of having cohort style learning is you get to know other people in your organization that you might not have known before. Mm. So we've seen that, This type of cohort can create a community of practice and learning that continues far beyond the program. So, for example, with the programs that we've run with uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, we've heard that many of those individuals still meet once a month, even after the program, to discuss, you know, how their skills are progressing. What are the challenges that they're facing and that leads to so many greater things, including additional communication, collaboration, and innovation within that organization. So those types of anecdotes also help us determine the success of the program.
1: Yeah, thanks for being very concrete on those information, like formal assessment, real-time feedback, and capstone projects. And I love the point about god bay classes. I think that provides an additional layer of accountability, Like right? people want to see how they do. There's people looking over them that for sure. Besides the training component ideas, it so also provides a customer AI solution to inform decision, automate time-consuming manual processes, and solve complex data challenges for your clients. Maybe it could be useful if you can walk through like an example of how your in-house scientists engineers work with the clients to craft this startup customized solution.
2: Yeah, so I'll pick one that we did last year that I really enjoyed where we had a client who was in the defense space and in the government and wanted to aggregate and just understand the landscape of solutions for cybersecurity issues, right? So we all know there are a lot of companies right now that are addressing different problems uh, around cybersecurity, but sometimes it's hard to understand where they all are in the landscape, how many people they have, whether or not they have funding, and then the solutions that they offer. And what we did is we worked with our client to identify what were the key challenges and the key pain points. And then beyond that, we developed a customized search algorithm specific to cybersecurity where we actually um, aggregated a bunch of different APIs from different data sources, and then also used some additional algorithms to compile all of that information into an easy-to-use platform where you know, if I'm a procurement officer in the government and I'm looking for a solution to a particular challenge, I can actually look up, you know, who has those cybersecurity solutions. And then it also tells me more about them, like potentially other projects they've worked on within government, as well as, you know, what schedules they're on and things like that. So just the ability to could build this platform that helps address such a pressing need and could also be extrapolated towards a variety of industries, right? It doesn't have to be cybersecurity. What about healthcare, right? Uh, What about, you know, these new, there's a lot of AI solutions and products that are out there now. How do we know what's best to use? All of that could be customized, uh, you know, based on the type of product that we build.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I'm curious, maybe, tell me about some of the challenges of that journey. Uh, I suppose, building in-house solution for the clients probably require a lot of buy-in from Desa as well. So maybe can you share some of the, Not necessarily have to be technical, but also even like logistic or organizational challenges when, you know, data society craft these tools for the client.
2: I think the biggest challenge, and this is across the board, I would say across consulting and training, is ensuring a good level of communication to establish trust you know, we are very good at what we do. But if we don't communicate that well to the client, then they might not understand all the work that goes into it or the challenges that we're facing. So what does that mean? It means ensuring that we set the objectives up front, we have it written down, and it gets the approval, of course, of the other team. That means setting up you know, regular communications, whether that's weekly or biweekly to talk about progress and to also talk about challenges. You know, one of the hardest things to do is to come to a client when you hit a roadblock, maybe the data is not accessible, maybe it's more expensive than you initially thought of. And we've always found it best to just have those hard conversations up front, and to be very transparent about what the solution is that we have to offer and what the challenge is. And then how can we help bridge the gap to make sure that the client is getting what they need to be successful so that's the hardest part i would say of any project um, and of course you know technically there are always challenges when you're aggregating a lot of data sources so i would mm-hmm. say that's
1: the other part of it i see yeah so really about communicate the objective and the challenges up front and make sure that the clients are being aware of that well, that's right you mentioned a bit earlier that being in bc there's a lot of the clients that is society to work on government and federal agency So definitely the government sector is a core focus of your company. Um, There's actually a dedicated landing page on on the website for this sector. What are some of the biggest challenges that hinder the adoption of data science for the government and federal agency based on just your experience working with this sector?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. One of the biggest challenges is finding the right talent. You know, government sector, it's difficult for them to be competitive in terms of salaries, although there are a lot of great benefits in terms of, you know, job security as well as growth. But it can be difficult to get the right people. So recruiting is definitely one of the biggest challenges when it comes to getting data scientists into the federal government. I would say... Another challenge is not necessarily the lack of investment, because I think at this point everybody, especially across the federal government, understands how important data is. So it's not a lack of wanting to learn. It's just there can be barriers to finding the right resources, to getting the time that you need to actually go and learn these types of skills. People in the federal government are really busy. You know, they have a lot of work to do, and it can be tough to get to get away. So it's You know, what I'm really heartened to see is just the number of policies that have come out recently regarding the importance of data literacy across the federal government. And, you know, seeing that that's become such a priority, I think will allow people to be more comfortable taking the time that they need to get those training skills. You know, we train a lot of folks in the government and everybody that we've trained is so excited to be able to take the skills that we've taught them and actually Turn that to help their constituents, right? Um, and to help other people. So, you know, for us, it's a win win to be able to support those efforts.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing those. Recruiting for them and as well as the resources, reliable resources. That's why, you know, they need an organization like Data Society to come in and help and solve some of those challenges, right? While doing the research for this conversation, I came across this blog post that you written a while back called Easter Enterprise Data Driven. Basically, dissect the six different steps for an organization to moving up the data analytics maturity model. Yeah, so could you mind unpacking some of these steps for the listeners who are curious about?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about building a data-driven culture, we're talking about it along two different axes. So we have data infrastructure, which is about access, security, uh, and then data collection. And then we also have the other side of it, which is Uh, data literacy, data knowledge? Does your staff have the appropriate knowledge to use data? Does your leadership support it? Do you have appropriate data governance structure? So when we talk about a data-driven culture, we do have specific metrics. I know that that term is used a lot. And when we're thinking through that, you know, there are a few steps that folks can take to start to build their way towards it. A lot of organizations have some data scientists, some data professionals, and I would say, use them to the best of your ability, right? So make sure that if you have data scientists who've built programs or have code repository, that they know where they can share that information. So sharing that knowledge and sharing that expertise is crucial to making sure that people can problem solve together and don't necessarily rebuild, reinvent the wheel, so to speak. You know, you also wanna kind of start with some of the pain points that you have. What's the low hanging fruit that you can go after? For us, we do a lot of non-technical training programs, especially for executives and managers. And that can be really helpful to help the mindset of leadership get into a position where they feel comfortable using data and feel comfortable with the data vocabulary. So it's important to identify what are the quick wins that you have, and then also set milestones for that as well, and know that it's iterative. Nothing is going to go perfectly off the bat. And this is very difficult to do. So it takes a lot of time, be patient and find those quick wins to help you get there. I mentioned kind of data governance as well. With data governance, it's essentially a set of guidelines that you can use within an organization to make sure that your data is being kept appropriately and securely. That could say, hey, where do you store your data? How do you access your data? How do you label columns? How do you label your data sets, right? There's a lot of these basic logistics that, fall by the wayside a lot to the point where there is most of the data that organizations have, we actually refer to as dark data, because it's data that lives on somebody's laptop and is not accessed by anybody else. So the minute that that laptop is wiped, or maybe that person leaves, that data is gone. And that's a lot of data that exists, you know, so those are some of the steps, you know, we'll also make sure you have the tools that you need in order to be able to start to implement some of these
1: solutions. Sure, and I'll be sure to include the link to the blog to the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look and read deeper into some of the points you mentioned. I think especially your point about data governance, I think that's an increasingly topic that warrants more attention. There's also a nice lot between you know the conversation around data security, data privacy as well. So I think that's a very interesting point that companies need to be aware of. Now, most recently, Data Society released a new product called R, which is built for learning and development teams in the healthcare sector. So my question is twofold. First is like, why is there a need for healthcare organization to upskill the employees with data science training? And secondly, how was the product being built to address such growing demands?
2: I am really excited that we have launched our first product ever that specifically addresses the need of healthcare organizations. And the pain points that we saw specifically with healthcare, it's very overwhelming with data, like there's so much data that exists. And there's a lot of different systems where that data exists. And we're reaching a breaking point where there's so much data that's overwhelming, but people are still figuring out the best way to use that data. So for us, we saw that there was a big gap, although it is closing, you know, I will say that there are a lot of healthcare organizations are doing great work to upskill their employees, but there's still a big gap. So for us, we saw that was one of the most pressing needs for us, specifically in healthcare, because like I said earlier, it really is life or death situations. And especially with everything that's happening in the pandemic, it's critical that we understand, you know, how it shifts and how it impacts our society so we can provide better resources for those who need it. And when we are delivering these types of programs. We started to get a lot of requests about how you can build a community beyond the classroom. So, what does that look like? How do you foster mentorship programs? How do you make sure that your teams know what trainings are coming up? How do you market that to get them to join? So, we saw all of these pain points about the community building, about um, tracking skills, about communications. And we said, well, you know, just like we did seven years ago, well, if we can't find a solution to this ourselves, let's build it. And so that's where the idea for Melder came out. We saw an opportunity to bring in our learning expertise as well as our technical expertise to develop a platform that can help foster communities via mentorship programs, via communication platforms like automated communications for the uh, learning and development teams, as well as scheduling additional events outside of the classroom to make sure that the skills are still being used.
1: I see. I love the part about community practice. I think that's been brought up a few times in that conversation. You know, I think that's one of the points you mentioned when, you know, during the training program, the, the pilot training program that your team's working on as well. How do you see this product being continued, refined, and iterate next year or so? Yeah, what's on the growth method?
2: Yeah. So we will be launching with some of our clients internally first and getting their feedback to understand how they're using that tool and what other features they would like to see. So for that, it will be more of an iterative process. And of course, as we continue within the healthcare industry, we will expand to other ones as well, because we've seen these needs across all industries. We just saw that right now, you know, in healthcare, it feels like a more immediate need.
1: Definitely. I'm excited to see how more healthcare practitioners can get trained and upscale on their data science capabilities. Let's take off your training and data hat and put on your CEO hat. Based on my understanding, Data Society is an entirely bootstrap company. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: In the early days, what were some of the financial challenges that your team had to overcome to keep the company under operation?
2: You know, for us, the main challenge, as I think it always is, is just making sure we had more money coming in the door than was going out the door. When we were just two people with a laptop, essentially, it was easier, you know, we didn't have a, a lot of expenses. But then of course, as we grew, we needed to ensure that we had the revenue to match it. So from that perspective, we were pretty conservative about hiring at the beginning, we wanted to make sure we could only bring people on that we would be able to keep with us. And in fact, our employee number one, who's been with us for five years, you know, she's still with us today, as well as many of our earlier employees. So we see that as a testament to the way that we have, have managed our finances because we don't ever want to have to let somebody go due to a financial crunch in the situation. You know, Beyond that, it was just making sure that we had the work for it. So that's why we were so vigilant about looking at the opportunities that were available to us so that we could always have money coming through the door. And that's just a lot of hustle. It's a lot of conversations. It's a lot of connections. So that's how we manage that.
1: Based on that part about hustling, I think I came across the um, kickstarter campaign that you did in December 2016. Yeah, wouldn't you mind going over the story behind that and how did that work out?
2: Yeah, that was an interesting time for us because at that point we were still doing B2C. So we were still doing for individual students. We had a few courses on our learning management system that we built ourselves that were doing very well. And we wanted to see, you know, how else we could get the word out. And so what we did for that was actually, we thought a Kickstarter campaign would be a good way to do that because we would be able to gauge the interest level for this type of training. And then also it would would help us with the marketing. You know, it was a very, very tough month, I will say it is very intensive. If anyone is thinking about doing a Kickstarter, it takes a lot of planning, you have to really think through who you're going to reach out to how you're going to market your campaign, what are the outlets you're going to reach out to for articles, because you know, there's a lot of stuff that's out there and that's competing with your attention. So we thought, you know, we would want to raise money to be able to finish out the rest of the sequence of our courses. And the interesting thing is, it wasn't necessarily that we didn't have money to finish it, but a lot of it was also just validation and proof of market. So within that, our initial goal was $25,000 for the month, and then we raised $35,000, which was a big tribute to the community and then to um, a lot of the advertising that we did and outreach that we did but it was really hard. <laughs> so I would say, you know, and we're lucky because we don't have to ship anything out for us. All of the courses were virtual. So what I would say for anybody who is thinking about doing a Kickstarter campaign, just make sure you have all of your ducks in a row. You planned it out very well because it takes a lot of effort.
1: Thanks for sharing that story. I think it's very cool. And you mentioned like initially that Society kept a B2C model, right? Targeting individual uh, consumers. And later on, ship costs later into the B2B model to train more organization level. And also, I think like fighting some of the early adopters is generally very challenging for any early stage companies in general. First of all, can you walk through the decision to pivot that business model? Second of all, like once you decided on the B2B model, right? How has your team been able to score some of the partnership with the Fortune 500 companies and federal agency? What are some challenges that the team had overcome to actually try this partnership and have this logos on the grab side.
2: Yeah. You know, as we, we said in the early years, we were focused on B2C. We were doing fine. We were doing fine. But what we noticed is in order to be truly competitive in that space, we had to spend, you know, probably millions of dollars in marketing and, and AdWords and things like that. And we were a bootstrap company. We just didn't have that kind of money lying around. So that was one of the factors in the, our decision. And then the other factor was, as we were delivering these courses, we were doing virtual instructor-led, and we had some of our asynchronous courses that were just self-teaching, we would get requests to train teams. We would get asked to come in and we saw you know, how much of a need that there was for this and thought, this is an area where... We don't necessarily need those millions of dollars in AdWords, but can actually build our relationships and really help further our mission of empowering people to use data. And we thought, you know, in order to succeed, sometimes you have to do less better. We obviously had limited resources. And so we had to make that decision. You know, do we want to abandon kind of the B2C that we had, maybe taper off those revenues and start to go after the B2B revenues. And we decided at the end of the day that that was the better option for us as a company. You know, some of our early clients were the Department of Commerce, as well as Northrop Cummins. The first few that we won, some of it was by referral, although we did win one competitive bid because of a tweet that I sent out, actually. Uh, and that their chief data scientist saw it. They thought we were interesting. We were invited to be part of this competitive bid. We were one of seven companies and we won. So that was more happenstance than anything else. But, you know, success begets success. So once you do some of those earlier programs, you do a really good job. People know who you are and then they refer you to others. So a lot of our early success came from referrals. And that's so important to not only say that you deliver a good product, but actually deliver a good product, right? And that's the evidence for it right there.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing the details. And I, I looked for a referral. Yeah, that's definitely very, very important. Just focus on customer satisfaction and making sure that you satisfy the needs and that level of trust is going to be propagated throughout others as well. Hiring is another critical responsibility of any founder. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who i said about the mission of Data Society.
2: I would say hiring is absolutely the most critical aspect for any company, and especially for a small company where every person has an outsized impact. For us, we found success with people who don't necessarily have a traditional background. So maybe they don't have you know, an undergraduate in mathematics or anything like that, but who Have taught themselves those skills out of their passion and love again solving challenges and take responsibility for the projects that they're working on. As a small company, you know, there are pluses and minuses, right? But one of the biggest advantages of joining a small company is that you have the ability to create change on a larger level, especially us. We always ask for the opinions of our team members because we do not have a monopoly on the best ideas by far. And I always like to hire people who are smarter than me. I should never be the smartest person in the room. And so by getting people who are excited about teaching and who love learning and who also work independently, love solving challenges and, you know, treat others with respect. I mean, that's really what we were looking for. So a lot of times, you know, the resume will be a part of the interview, but it's not the whole interview. We like to get a sense of how a person learns, how do they overcome challenges? How do they work with others? And we've worked hard to build and retain that culture because it's, it's very important for me as a founder to create a good environment for our team. They have done an absolutely phenomenal job and the success that we have have had to date really is a credit to them and the work that they do. My goal now as the CEO of about 50 people, my job now is to make sure that they have the resources that they need to be successful, and that I can help set the vision with their input. So they are just phenomenal. And and the way that we hire really is for that culture fit. And over the summer, we recently defined, you know, what are our six values as a company, we did an activity and we're now we're able to codify that as we're looking for more people to hire. So, you know, for us it's very much about the passion and the excitement and the ability to take on, you know, different types of responsibilities as well within a small company.
1: Yeah. Oh, that probably makes a lot of sense. Definitely. Just, just on a quick note, I'm curious. I think it's kind of relevant. It's just how do you ensure good company culture in a remote environment? I don't know if you're used to the remote working before. I think like this is probably on top of my mind for a lot of companies these days. Like, how do you still Making sure that team members can get close to each other and know each other better, even when they're not in the same physical setting.
2: It's harder to do that in a remote work environment because you don't have everybody in the same space, right? So we weren't remote. And then the COVID hit, we, of course, went remote. And now we've hired people who are remote workers who are not in the D.C. area. So you know, how do we keep that culture going? You know, one of the things that we do, we have, we call it an awesome team meeting. We have it once a month. And that's an opportunity for everybody in the company to get together, to get high level overview of what we're doing, celebrate the wins. And at the beginning, we do icebreaker activities, get people talking, have those types of conversations and demonstrate collegiality, you know, across the company. So, you know, the first piece of it is just, it comes from the top. So myself, my co-founders, my leadership team, all of us understand the importance of being respectful to our employees, to our team members, and making sure that they feel valued and they feel heard. That's point one. Mm-hmm. Common check-in. So making sure you're checking in with your team members on a regular basis is another important aspect. And you know, we actually set up what we call, it's a virtual coffee channel, and it's run by this plugin called Donut, which you can get on Slack. And every two weeks, it matches you up with somebody random. You have a half hour coffee. It's been wonderful. I get to see people, you know, I don't see on a regular basis. And my goal is not to talk about work. And we just talk about, hey, what's happening in your life? What books have you read and things like that? So maintaining that attitude and giving our leadership and and our team leads the ability to have types of smaller events can help keep that culture going. You know, I'd say the other side of it is just having a good level of trust, You know, the past two years have been really difficult for a lot of people. We have a lot of parents on the team who have had to juggle the education of their kids along with actual work. And, you know, for us, it's important that our team members put their families first. You know, the way that I think about it is the minute you ask anybody to choose between their family and work, they'll choose family 100%. So it doesn't make sense from a business perspective but also as a human being it just doesn't make sense right work is work it's not your life and so we are very lucky because we work in a remote environment we've been able to afford a lot of flexibility for our staff you know we transitioned to unlimited PTO earlier this year and encourage people to take it to ensure that they're able to take the time off that they need and i demonstrate that from the top you know i took 2 weeks off earlier this year i'm taking 2 weeks off at christmas Because if we demonstrate it, then they feel good about taking it, right? So having that unlimited PTO, you know, having a generous parental leave, regardless of gender or anything like that, you know, everybody should be able to take time off to be with their new kid. So having all of those policies, in addition to that level of respect and culture and collegiality that we work to foster has helped retain this good environment it is something that i'm very vigilant about because as we grow it's incredibly important that we maintain that
1: yeah thanks for sharing that i think a lot of listeners who work in remote environments might appreciate some of the tactics that you share and then probably incorporate them into their own as well another important focus for the society is giving back to the community such as partnership with organizations like the White House or the World Central Kitchen? What other initiatives would your team work on to bring more goodness to the world in 2022?
2: I really appreciate that question because it is a focus that we are looking to expand. You know, as a small business, As a startup, the main purpose is to just make sure you stay alive, make sure you have the money coming in. We're now at a point where we're able to monetarily be able to give back to our communities. So earlier this year, we also partnered with Rise Against Hunger, which is an organization to help end food insecurity around the world. And we also partnered with World Central Kitchen to help them access food in hard hit areas. So for us, food insecurity and the fact that there are so many people in the United States who don't know where the next meal is coming from, to me is an issue that everyone can rally behind. So looking at other ways where we can continue with that, maybe doing another partnership with Rise Against Hunger, as well as potentially volunteering now that things might be opening up a little bit with organizations such as Martha's Kitchen, which is local to the DC area and, and helps out at food banks. So that's one area that we're passionate about and looking to continue next year.
1: Yeah, fabulous. And for you personally, I think you also very passionate about increasing data science diversity through some of your involvement with organizations like Gender Diversity Across the Axis and uh, DC Femtech, right? I think you actually work one of the co-organizers of the um, Women Data Science Group in DC, mm-hmm. where you host talks and events and things like that. Personally, for you, what have you learned about different ways to engage more women into data science?
2: The best way to engage more women in data science is to be a role model and to be available. I think that's what I've learned. One of the things that I love about DC is it's one of the best places to be a woman in the technology field. There are so many women who have been incredibly helpful to me in my journey. They've given me their time, relationships, resources, and that level of encouragement you know, really has helped me get to where I am today. So for me to be able to be a role model for anybody else who's thinking about getting into the field is very powerful. And I know that for me, when I was looking at role models, that was effective as well. I'd say the other other piece of that is, you know, having events where you can just help people understand the basics of data science, the basics of programming. One of the biggest challenges that we face in training is getting over that barrier to entry a lot of people who don't have any experience in data or programming feel a lot of fear and trepidation um, about even trying this, right? And I'll say, especially as women, you know, we're told, hey, girls, you know, maybe math is not your subject, right? And so we internalize that. And as a result, if you look at the trajectory of women in technology, it's going up a little bit now, but for a while, women were very strong in math and science until about middle school. And then you see that trend uh, decrease, decrease in high school. And it's not because of ability, right? It's because of what we are being told. So being able to show them, you know, here's what data science is, we're talking about quantifying relationships around you. Let's open up a programming language and start at the very foundation of it, let's just add some numbers, use it as a, a nice calculator. Getting people comfortable with that will help propel them into the next phase of learning.
1: I think like you can be what you can see. Yeah, that's right. And having that role models is really important, especially for younger girls, right? To aspire and be someone that they can be in the future. I think based on your own story, coming from the education background, transition to data science and learning program by yourself, mm-hmm. definitely, resonate a lot with people who probably kind of want to do the same i just want to say it because you definitely practice what you say
2: yeah i do my best
1: (laughs) finally as a teacher at heart you have said before in an interview that education is truly the great equalizer and critical to unlocking society's potential where do you see the evolution of education as a sector in the next three to five years
2: yeah, this is an interesting one, because right now, and I can say I'm speaking for the United States, I know that teachers are facing a lot of burnout. Um, it's been very, very difficult for them to teach virtually, and then to move into the classroom, and then sometimes have masks. And, and, you know, there are teachers who have died, you know, because they've contracted COVID. So it's been a very hard few years for teachers. And it's also been hard for parents, and has also shined a light on a lot of the inequity that exists today where people um, don't always have access to a laptop. They don't always have access to fast internet. So, you know, I think over the next three to five years, we're going to see a lot more evaluation of equity. How can we make sure that people have the resources that they need to be successful? I know there are initiatives that are happening now to get fast internet across the nation. I think we'll see a rise in K through 12, virtual learning and maybe homeschooling. Some parents I'm sure are can't wait to get their kids back in the classroom. And I think maybe others have found a way to, to make that work. And potentially more individualized instruction as well mm-hmm. through some small group instruction and things like that. So, you know, we're seeing a shift at least in the K through 12 space in that regards and you know hopefully people will be nicer to teachers maybe give them some more presents and a bottle of wine some gift cards and things like that because you know as somebody who was in the classroom i know that the past few years have been very difficult and without high quality educators in our schools we are doing a disservice to our children so it's really important more than ever that we have the right people in the classroom you know and just people who can feel passionate about teaching.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing that experience. And I I can hear, you know, the authenticity that you convey based on your experience as a teacher. So Merab, at this point of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you can give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the broader data community whose work you admire.
2: Three people whose work I admire. The first one would be uh, DJ Patil, who was the first chief data scientist of the United States. Uh, Even though he's no longer doing that, he is very passionate about using data ethically and equitably. And that's something that we work on a lot as well. Hillary Mason, also, she is a wonderful data scientist who's doing a lot of cutting edge research in artificial intelligence. And now she actually started another company focused on AI powered play and how does that help? Children learn and and play better. And then I would also say Dr. Uh, Avril Epps Darling, she is working on research regarding equity in schools and looking at that. She gave a wonderful presentation to us earlier this year about bias in data that was really helpful to us. And, you know, it was a good reminder that if you just accept data at face value, you're also incorporating a lot of the biases that exist in the data. And it's incredibly important to ask the right questions to make sure that you're using data responsibly.
1: Number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate a data-driven mindset.
2: I really liked Weapons of Math Destruction, which is written by Cathy O'Neill. It's a great book to get an understanding of how algorithms are present in our lives, as well as how they go bad. And I think more than ever, it's important that we think about data critically. So that's a great resource I would recommend.
1: Then finally, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the educators turn powders on Twitter. What could you tweet about?
2: (laughs) What would I tweet about? Well, I'll say that it's nice to be able to grab a coffee whenever I want. If I need to get up and walk around, I'll say that's Something I think a lot of educators turned founders could appreciate. I think more than that, I would be curious to get their opinions on how the skills that they learned in the classroom has shaped how they have built their companies. Because mm-hmm. I know that my years of teaching have really given me a lot of good skills that I've needed to build what we have at Data Society today. So mm-hmm. I'd love to hear what other opinions would be on that.
1: I see. Yeah. I think earlier in the interview, you mentioned those uh, patient and, and self-care. Right. And I think that I'm sure those top you as a CEO as well.
2: Yeah. And chocolate always.
1: So, <laughs> <laughs> up, I really enjoy our conversation today. Learning about your background in education, your years as a teacher, the funny story of Data Society, the different training program, AI solution that your team is working on, as well as the recent product that targeting healthcare and government sector. We also went through a couple of interesting stories on how you operate the company as a founder, ranging from you know, bootstrapping the company to shifting business model to hiring talent to giving back to the community and even contributing to the diversity in data science and i'll be sure to include uh, everything that we discussed today under the show notes so listeners can have a chance to follow up take a look and reach out if they interested more about mission of the society to unlock the power of data for large enterprise and federal agencies and yeah with that in mind i hope you have a Great rest of your afternoon.
2: Thank you so much for having me, James. It's been a pleasure.
0: Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website JamesKelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us Goodbye for now